All right. Oh, it, we, we're, we're, we've arrived at the hour. Um, if you will, please turn in your hymnals to number 168. This is from the Genevan Psalter. Uh, uh, the tune is from the Genevan Psalter. The, the hymn itself is from the Strasbourg Psalter of 1545. Uh, I greet thee who my sure redeemer art. Please stand and sing this together. <clears throat> Gracious God, we ask for your blessing upon us in this final session of our conference this weekend. 
We thank you again for Dr. Van Dixhorn. We thank you for all that we've learned so far, and we pray, O oh Lord, that you'd bless us uh, even more fully as this conference comes to a close. We pray for uh, traveling mercies for all who will be traveling uh, great distances and even uh, short distances, O oh Lord. Please be with us, and may this time together, this final session, be good preparation for us as we make ourselves ready to gather on the Lord's Day tomorrow for corporate worship, for public worship, for the gathering of your saints in your assembly. Oh Lord, may you be glorified now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Invite uh, Reverend Dr. Van Dixhorn back before us this morning. And again, brother, we thank you for uh, what you have uh, done for us uh, in this conference this weekend. Thanks, Thanks Joe. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank you for making me feel so, so welcome in the great state of Texas. As you now know, the assembly about which um, we're, we're, we're speaking, or I'm speaking, we're reflecting on today, met in Westminster, which is actually now a suburb or a city next to London, uh, in the middle of a bloody civil war uh, that tore the nation apart and the nations around it. England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and the English Parliament, as you know, uh, raised an army to try and rein in the power of the king and to gain uh, reforms in taxation and religion and, and in political process. The uh, English Parliament of the 1640s that I keep referring to was called the Long Parliament because it met, uh, well, for a really long time. Um, the Westminster Assembly is the uh, is the Long Parliament's parachurch synod called to continue England's Reformation, uh, begun a century before. The membership was actually handpicked by the two houses of Parliament, and most of most of the gathering was was English. Uh, I mentioned that the Scots exported a handful of delegates after signing that document called the Solemn League and Covenant. Uh, the French. Uh, foreign churches or stranger churches in London uh, supplied two ministers to the assembly. Uh, uh, Dublin was informally represented by Joshua Hoyle, who, who had taught at Trinity College in Dublin in Ireland until the unpleasantness of the 1640s. Uh, the Welsh, of course, had no important theologians, and Englishmen were sent in their place. Well, in this, that was, that was just a joke for anyone here who's from Wales, uh, but it is an accurate reflection of the English perception of the Welsh, uh, even if it's not an accurate perception of Wales. In this final session with you, I want to look at models of pastoral care, uh, or maybe I should say pastoral care and neglect, uh, advanced by the Westminster Assembly, because there's a bit of each. Uh, and what I'm saying here in the next uh, little while really is only intended to flag topics for discussion. Uh, I hope that in our Q&A period we might be able to think together at least for a few minutes about what it means to give and to receive uh, pastoral care. The closest that the Westminster Assembly ever, ever came to outlining its priorities uh, for pastoral care was in a document that was given its first reading in early November 1643. As you now know, in the summer of 1643, uh, the Long Parliament, actually at the Westminster Assembly's request, uh, was called to examine ordained ministers and then later called to examine even incoming ministers uh, 
and uh, the assembly was asked uh, to create and wanted to create a kind of comprehensive screening program for the nation's clergy. Uh, the assembly had been assembled by the rebel parliament to reform the church, but its members were also eager to reform its personnel, the, the personnel of the church, and not just the structures and doctrines of the church. Uh, and in the decade between 1643 and 1653, as I mentioned last time, or last night, I should say, the, the assembly spent more time examining these individuals than it did fashioning a new church government, revising public worship, or creating confessional texts for a more fully reformed church. I have tried to show that this project is significant for the history and theology of preaching, but this story is also significant for the history of pastoral care. Remember, thousands of active or aspiring pastors had to satisfy the Westminster Assembly uh, with some account of their present or their planned ministry. And without wanting to exaggerate the effect that an examination can have on future job performance, um, it does seem fair to say that the assembly uh, enjoyed an unprecedented opportunity to impress their ideals for pastoral ministry on their colleagues in the Church of England. Well, to ensure some kind of uniformity in this grand vetting project, the assembly voted in early November a set of instructions for the examiners. Uh, and most of the questions treated the examinee's personal godliness and education and a potential preaching competence. But two of the 21 points on which he was to be examined, uh, two of the 21 points in the checklist directly addressed the topic of pastoral care. Rule 16, trial needs to be taken, how he can work upon consciences. Rule 17, to be asked, that is the candidates to be asked, what he thinks of catechizing and of the right way of visiting the sick. Together, these two rules touched on three problems in living, typically addressed in post-Reformation pastoral care, that of sin, ignorance, and suffering. Some demonstration of proficiency in these three categories was required to meet a minimum standard of care. Now again, this talk is in some ways more an exercise in cartography than history. The best I can do is kind of map for myself and maybe for you uh, some assembly priorities and some perspectives on pastoral care. Uh, I really can't give a full picture, but we'll see what we can do in, in the minutes that, that we have before us. I'll first discuss the, pastor, the pastoral approach to problems in living adopted by the majority of the assembly before offering two clusters of observations based on the writings of actual members of the assembly. So those are my two buckets of sources. Uh, and I want to discuss these three topics, uh, uh, sin, ignorance, and suffering. It's not likely to be an accident that the assembly first insisted that, the, that a candidate be required to know how to work on the conscience. In the assembly's own literature, the word conscience carries moral overtones, as when the confession of faith calls for people to do their duty for conscience sake. 
The conscience is the early warning system for detecting idolatry of the heart. The alarm that sounds when temptation has penetrated human defenses. It has to do with sin. And in the Assembly's writing, the problem of sin appears first in petitions to Parliament. For members' consciences required them to speak out against unchecked sin in the English nation. Predictably, sin was also a major focus of the gathering's explicitly theological texts. A a chapter is given to the subject early on in the 1646 Confession of Faith. And and pithy aphorisms, uh, condensed statements on the subject of sin, appear in both of the 1647 catechisms, designed to help children and heads of households articulate the nature and effects of sin. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. What does sin do? Well, among other things, it brings humanity into an estate of sin and misery. In considering the problem of sin, the assembly explained that the first movements of Adam and Eve in the garden were the grim overture uh, to all the misery that was to follow. And the clinical diagnosis of the assembly, basic to the cure of souls, is that all people enter life already dead in transgressions and sins. Additionally, as the Assembly's Confession explains, from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. From a state of sin erupts a life of sin. Not even grace interrupts the full effects of sin. Grace places a person in a right standing with God. Grace restores a broken relationship, gives peace with God, guarantees glory. Grace alleviates, but in this life does not eradicate the effects of sin. The confession would stress that this corruption of nature that we've inherited from Adam, at least during this life, does remain in those that are regenerated. See, godly divines emphasize that sin has a shelf life, a lingering potency that perhaps exceeds even the devil's expectations. Well, it's because of their views of the pervasive power of sin that the assembly stresses the importance of the conscience. Of course, there, as their 1643 rules of examination suggest, the assembly's focus on the conscience as a matter of pastoral practice was emphasized not merely in the debating chamber of the Westminster Assembly, the Jerusalem chamber, but also down the hall at a little room called the Jericho Parlor. The parlor was the assembly's center for processing examinees, um, the place where they would make trial of a candidate's abilities to work on the conscience, to, to, to convict sinners of sin. Well, by 1644, the Assembly successfully institutionalized the necessity for pastoral proficiency in conscience work. Its directory for ordination required presbyteries to question a candidate regarding his skill in the sense and meaning of such places of scripture as shall be proposed unto him in cases of conscience. Understanding human responsibility in sinful actions meant 
that the assembly refused to look for quick solutions for sin. Uh, there's no simple way to exorcise sin, indwelling sin, in a believer. Now, the fight against sin entailed a change of mind as well as a change of heart. Effective change also required preventative care. The best kind of care, the best kind of preventative care, is found, of course, in a good biblical education. The two explicitly educational texts designed by the assembly are the shorter and larger catechisms. Uh, each offers a survey of what man is to believe concerning God and the duty that God requires of man. Nonetheless, each catechism is primarily setting out not just a system of doctrine, but a plan of salvation, guiding sinners away from sin. Many aspects of biblical history and theology proper are, are ignored in both in, in the catechisms, while on the other hand, the way uh, and the necessity of salvation structures both of these, of these educational texts. First, each catechism walks the believer through historic events of creation, fall, and redemption. And then both catechisms bring the reader through the penetrating demands of God's law, the penalty earned by lawbreakers, and a call to repentance and faith in Christ. As a component part of pastoral care, the Assembly's model for catechetical instruction offered a church-based solution designed to address the problem of indwelling sin. Of course, the Assembly's ministerial examination question, uh, the questions that the Rules 16 and 17 that I've been uh, mentioning just now were issued four years before these catechetical texts were complete. And you may remember that question seven, or Rule 17 tells examiners that they're to ask what he thinks of catechizing. It looks like an open-ended question. Nah, I don't really like it. I quite like catechizing. Um, but there was really only one correct answer. <laughs> Oddly enough, it may have been the candidate's willingness to teach, and not necessarily his abilities to do so, that the assembly initially assessed. If so, the, peculiar, the peculiarities of that situation may soon have been addressed. By 1644, the assembly's directory for ordination required presbyteries to test the candidate's ability to catechize, as well as their ability to visit the sick, which may reflect a clarification in the assembly's own practice as well. Wouldn't those be good questions to ask candidates for ministry? How do you catechize? How do you teach outside of the pulpit? Give us some examples. Give us some samples. I have not been able to determine what the assembly meant by that third requirement, that the candidate know the right way to visit the sick. Indeed, while the problem of suffering features prominently in printed pastoral literature, the duty of a minister to conduct any kind of visitation, let alone just visitation to the sick, was warmly debated at the Westminster Assembly. In fact, the assembly spent hours discussing whether it was part of the pastoral office for a pastor to care for the poor himself. Thomas Temple said yes, unequivocally. John Jackson and George Walker made the odd proposal that the pastor should visit the poor, but ex officio, not as a pastor. Edmund Calamy said he should if he could fit, around, fit it around his other duties. A future moderator of the assembly, Charles Hurl, 
and a Channel Island minister, Jean Delamarche, made the argument that the diaconal office was encompassed in the pastoral office, and so he needed to do it. Some argued on principle that it was part of his office. Others, pragmatically, that it was good public relations with the parish. Others, pessimistically, that the job just wouldn't get done unless it had the pastor's leadership. The assembly concluded that caring for the poor was a pastoral duty, and a diaconal duty, and a Christian duty. But it did not specify that the pastor had to visit the poor himself. A month later, a renewed effort was made by a minority in the assembly to restrict the care of the poor to the diaconate, or even to consider it a human rather than a Christian concern to visit the poor. John Selden implied that only Constantine had really got it right. The care of the poor was the duty of the state. It was only later taken on by the church. The assembly merely added to its growing number of directories or instructions that the care of the poor was a diaconal duty and a Christian duty. Specific instructions regarding the manner of personal visitation of the poor as a part of pastoral care was never enshrined in any of the assembly's directories. But the visitation of the sick, uh, which sparked an equally involved debate, ultimately did appear in the assembly's writings. It was in December of 1643 that Thomas Temple... Uh, the chairman of the least powerful of the assembly's main three committees that drafted documents, made a two-part proposal. The first proposition was that it is part of the pastor's office to visit the sick, James 5, verse 14. Fourteen divines uh, offered nine distinct responses to the committee's proposal when it was presented to the assembly, ranging from an insistence that the pastor must visit the sick to arguments that he must not, unless explicitly summoned by a sick person. Given ongoing problems with the plague, members of the assembly were concerned, with good reason, that visitation of the sick could endanger the minister, and thus his public ministry, which William Googe argued was his most important calling. Others complained that the task of visiting the sick was unreasonable given the size of parishes. Jeremiah Whitaker thought it was unreasonable given the number of people who were dying. Herbert Palmer responded that there was hope that parish boundaries could be redrawn and thus make parishes smaller and visits more feasible. Thomas Young argued that an insistence on the visitation of the sick was a Lutheran rather than a reformed model of pastoral care. But Francis Taylor responded that his reformed contacts in Switzerland agreed with the Lutherans on this point, that ministers should visit the sick. Philip Nye twice announced that the visitation of the sick was the privilege of a Christian, not the duty of a pastor. As Nye saw it, the key question for these debates over pastoral care was whether a pastor's office includes his public duties only or also his private ones. Well, given the disease raging in jails and the number of people in jails, the debate over the needs of the sick naturally spilled over into a debate over the needs of prisoners. And yet the second part of Thomas Temple's report received no attention at all. You see, the committee, in addition to commending the visitation of the sick, had proposed that a pastor should watch over his flock in private and be diligent on all occasions in warning particular persons that nothing be omitted, that they be not seduced by errors on his part. Acts 20, 28 to 31. 
The committee's use of Acts 20 in support of a proposal for home visitation on the part of pastors further illuminates the difficulty that the assembly had in asserting the general duty of pastoral visitation. You see, Acts 20 verse 20 is the commonplace for arguing or urging, uh, arguing for or urging home visitation. You'll know that there the apostle reminds the elders of Ephesus, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. But the committee chose instead to cite a later section of Acts 20, stressing only the minister's self-watch and vigilance against error in the church. That's a vague case for home visitation from Scripture. And eventually it was dropped, and so far as I can see, was never raised again. The requirement that incoming ministers or examined ministers know how to visit the sick does not sit easily with a full day of debate over the duty of visiting the sick. Nonetheless, this tension does help to explain why the Westminster Assembly's directories for church government and worship urge that deacons and Christians should visit the poor and the sick. It also helps to explain why the Assembly's own subdirectory for visiting the sick so heavily qualifies a pastor's duty. He is only to visit as time, strength, and personal safety will, will, will permit. And even then, especially when sent for. But even then, it was not physical sickness that was to be the pastor's main concern if he visited the sick. The overwhelming emphasis on the directory for the visiting of the sick, which is one part of the overall directory for worship, is not so much on the pastor's duty to, con to comfort the sick, so much as it is for him to seize the opportunity to do some spiritual good. Prayer for healing is only given passing reference. The greater part of the subdirectory is about the problem of sin. As the text of the directory explains, times of sickness and affliction are special opportunities put into his hand, that's the minister's hand, by God to minister a word in season to weary souls because then the consciences of men are or should be more awakened to bethink themselves of their spiritual estates for eternity. And Satan also takes advantage then to load them with more sore and heavy temptations. Excuse me. Therefore the minister being sent for and repairing to the sick, going to the sick, is to apply himself with all tenderness and love to administer some spiritual good to his soul. All drafts of the directory for visiting the sick include reminders of the inevitability of death. All patients in the hands of physicians will die eventually. It is the, it is the unique task of pastors to help some patients live forever. But the tone of the directory is sometimes more than realistic. It can even be oppressive. The sick person ought to be shown his sin. It might be fit to raise him up with the gospel. It, uh, it's one of my own embarrassing mistakes not to have seen that a handwritten note which survives, introducing this kind of more depressing tone, this change in tone in the directory for visiting the sick, 
was not authored by the Westminster Assembly. This, these are recommended edits from the House of Commons, but I, didn't, I, I made a mistake with the handwriting and the paper that was used. Boundary disputes are inevitable in a subject as diffuse as problems in living. But the House of Commons' confidence that they could improve on the Assembly's counsel for the sick did not bode well for relations between the Assembly and Parliament. Conflict with the Commons was most intense when it came not to do with the problem of suffering, but the problem of sin and ignorance. But that's a conversation for another day. The problem of boundary disputes, which are obvious in the Assembly's uh, debates or, or ex exchanges with Parliament, uh, is more frequently raised in the writings of members. And here, given the time we have, I can only mention in passing obvious areas where pastoral theology was polemical, where there's dispute over who's to do what. The first area of dispute is in the pseudo-scientific and spiritual realms. Pastors at the Westminster Assembly and elsewhere worried about people in their congregations who supplemented or alloyed Christian teaching with astronomy or animism to help them cope with the uncertainties of life. Uh, people seeking answers from illegitimate authorities, um, uh, people who claim to tell the future and so on, rather than seeking a pastor's help and going to the word of God. Roman Catholicism also offered a rival method of pastoral care, smothering guilty consciences with the dirty gauze of empty routines. And then the whole Episcopal system was problematic claiming that pastoral care was properly only the work of the bishop and actually punishing any pastor, any, any local uh, priest of a congregation who claimed to be a pastor. Only the bishops were pastors, it was said. The godly insisted that this was a dream that never existed in reality. They also argued that the contact people did have with these supposed pastors, with these bishops, actually drove people away from productive pastoral care. The other powerful neighbor to the physician of the soul was, of course, the physician of the body. The volume of medical literature and the focus on body care in the 17th century was indirect competition with spiritual care. And divines were beginning to complain, pastors were beginning to complain, that people went to their doctors more quickly and followed their advice more closely than they did the physicians of their souls. Some things never change, it seems. Furthermore, a small number of, shall we call them, natural cause accounts, natural cause explanations for problems in living began to appear in the mid-17th century. Troubling because these so-called natural problems had typically been considered to be the result or manifestation of spiritual problems whether caused by sin or Satan. Nonetheless, medical literature was at most a general threat in the 1640s. Clergy ministers still held a kind of cultural jurisdiction over personal problems. Indeed, in its appropriation, in its use of, medical, of the medical community's own vocabulary, the assembly did show an easy confidence in the preeminence of spiritual care over physical care. Perhaps only during the civil wars is there any decrease in medical metaphors in, in pastoral writings, um, and then only because military metaphors briefly triumph in the war against sin.
Well, in considering vocabulary, the assembly itself would only rarely run with a metaphor in its writings in the way that a preacher might in a sermon. A directory calls ministers to examine the sick, to administer spiritual good to them, to offer comfort for spiritual infirmity. But the gathering as a whole did not employ any particular motif or theme to illumine the work of pastoral care. The, the pastoral theology of individual members, however, was clearly informed by two major words, shepherd and physician. The latter motif, that of the physician, was often developed into something like a model for pastoral care. The idea of minister as shepherd is everywhere in the, in the scripture itself. The minister as physician, on the other hand, is obviously more muted. Yet members collected biblical references to sin as sickness, to salvation as healing, and then extended the trope, extended the metaphor through the use of early modern medical ideas and terminology. Epidemiology stood for hermitology, things pharmaceutical for matters soteriological. Euphemisms for sin and its cure offered seemingly endless ways of addressing pastoral concerns. What assembly member Thomas Gattaker, in a pastoral letter to his cousin, would call man's disorder and distemper, our spiritual disease. Ministers guided men and women afflicted with spiritual cancers that no mere man could cure. Well, both rubrics or, or models in practice also justified a kind of confident, invasive pastoral care in the lives of the congregation. Uh, the shepherd model was useful because, as William Greenhill explained, sheep are foolish, silly creatures. They need their shepherds. And the medical model encouraged pastors to think of themselves not just as physicians for the sick, but surgeons for those who are gravely wounded. The idea of the pastor as God's physician is arguably the most dominant image in member-produced literature on pastoral care. And I could perhaps have, have uh, if, if my uh, talk on, on, um, on, on, on the assembly and preachers could have been called God's ambassadors because of the importance of that metaphor with respect to preaching, this one could have been called God's physicians. Well, I've given you a paper on pastoral or a lecture on pastoral theory, haven't I? Let me say right here that, that this is, of course, at least two steps removed from congregational experience. Uh, first, we've only been hearing from pastors. Uh, we've not heard from any, anyone who, who, who received pastoral care. And second, we all know that pastoral theory, in fact, any theory, does not necessarily play out in practice. And it's also worth noticing that if I've tried to summarize something like a system of pastoral care from the assembly and its members, uh, the assembly itself and most of its members did not do that kind of thing for themselves. But what they did do, what they did do significantly, persistently, more than anything else, was to focus an attack on sin. That is the chief concern of their pastoral care. Uh, the rules of examination. Uh, clashes with Parliament, criticisms about competitors in, in, in the pastoral world, all of them raise the specter of sin. Members' main pastoral motifs, likewise, offered easy access to the subject of sin. Shepherds and their senseless sheep, doctors and their ailing patients. Sin is the focus. 
But as assembly members understood their pastoral task, a conviction of sin was chiefly a prerequisite, a step towards introducing a discussion about the Savior. In one of its texts, the assembly insisted that the conscience merely needed to be awakened so that the minister could apply himself to administer all tenderness and love. The sinner's conscience needed to be pricked so he or she could apprehend the justice and wrath of God before which no man can stand and, being lost in himself, lay hold upon Christ by faith. The Catechism discusses the law in part in order to get to the gospel. The directory for, for the sick implicitly admits that this balance isn't always struck, that, that the balance between discussing sin and discussing the Savior isn't always understood rightly because it cautions that the minister also is to take care that he cast him not down into despair by such a severe representation of the wrath of God due to him for his sins as is not mollified or, or tempered by a seasonable propounding or, or preaching of Christ and his merits. Uh, sin helps us get to Christ. Although pastors sometimes get the balance wrong and the directory carefully warns that don't press home their sins so much that they're too depressed to ever see the Savior. The models for pastoral care employed by the assembly also had the potential to, to direct pastor and parishioner to Jesus by reminding the practitioner that he was only an under-shepherd of the good shepherd, an intern of the great physician. Edward Reynolds spoke about ministers as healers of the sick, but he also acknowledged that the metaphor leads us to look upon sinners as patients, upon God as the physician. Even polemical discussions, even argumentative discussions in Presbyterian pastoral care literature was as much a practical and theological dispute about the application of the only remedy, Jesus Christ, as it was arguments sometimes about the diagnostic differences about the nature of sin. Well, there's much more that I could say um, and should be said about the Westminster Assembly and the care and the cure of souls. Because I've discussed it already, I've said nothing here about preaching. One of the most basic aspects of pastoral work. Preaching was important in part because it's efficient. Uh, sin was perceived to be a kind of pandemic in the 17th century. And like managers of the World Health Organization, practitioners needed to make resources stretch as far as possible. Preaching is efficient. It talks to a lot of sinners at once. Preaching is also prioritized by the assembly in pastoral care because, as Anthony Burgess explains, it permits the pointed and powerful application of necessary truths to the hearts and consciences of men. Or as John Aerosmith explained, preaching allows people to see how Christ, by his own death, has changed the death of his people into medicine. It'll also be obvious to you that this whole time, I've been talking about pastors talking. An important part of pastoral care is also pastors listening. The directory for the sick talks about that too. The pastor is to give his counsel based on information that he gleans from the patient through listening. He's to be situationally aware, only praying with and for the patient. When the 
when the sick person is best composed, may be least disturbed, and other necessary offices or, 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 or activities about him would be least hindered. A good bedside manner is essential for pastoral care. But arguably, the assembly's focus on the heart, the focus on sin and the Savior, probably privileged the spiritual aspects of people in the congregation at the expense of recognizing that people are complete psychosomatic beings. Sometimes people need a cardiologist. They need someone to talk about their heart. Sometimes they just need a family doctor. The kind of treatment offered by the assembly was resistant to excuses for sin, but perhaps resistant to excuses for sin, almost to the point of being uninterested in the contexts of sin. Actually, the assembly's larger catechism does consider contexts for sin, but only to explain sin's aggravating effects and never its mitigating circumstances. I think it's fair to say that even in the case of the mentally ill, assembly men were willing to allow that some very dysfunctional people with some very unusual symptoms could actually be guilty sinners um, evidencing an uneasy conscience in bizarre ways. And I think there's probably something to that. But assembly members appear far more concerned with the possibility, with the worry of offering an excuse to a troubled conscience than they were in pastorally understanding uh, environmental or hereditary prompting to sin. They're much more J. Adams, if you will, than CCEF, if that means anything to you as a pastor or a Christian. It's also interesting to note that the assembly did not obviously recommend a program of, of regular household visitation uh, for congregations. Uh, that would have been a hard thing for them to have started uh, or to have insisted on everywhere. Many of them actually did do this already, uh, but they don't insist upon this as part of the pattern uh, for fixing pastoral care in the nation. Well, the assembly ended unceremoniously. Um, its proposals for church government were implemented briefly and then adopted or ignored voluntarily across the nation. Its theological texts were popular amongst dissenters and Scotsmen and then through emigration and missionary work have been uh, used around the world. Ironically, however, the last word about the activities of the Westminster Assembly was in a newspaper um, reporting the results of the latest round of ministerial examinations. And it may be that it's in those examinations that the assembly had the greatest impact on its own generation. And perhaps if some of the questions they asked candidates were used today, it might have some impact on our own generation as well. Okay, thank you. So I, I think we've got about 15 minutes uh, for questions or 10 minutes or something like that. So I tried to keep this one a little, little shorter, either enabling you to, to get home more quickly or to, or to ask a few questions. Yes, John. Just a simple thing. Uh, it's probably painfully, everyone already knows it, but is there a reason why we call it the larger and shorter 
larger and smaller or longer and shorter. You, you know, it is a little irritating that it's not, you know, longer and shorter or larger and smaller. Uh, yeah, no apparent reason. Nobody ever seems to have thought that there was some kind of incongruity there. Um, I think John Bauer in his book on the larger catechism may comment on that. I think there may have been some, some previous examples of people using larger um, the excuse me, larger catechism. I can say with some confidence, is not an unusual term. It's actually shorter. Uh, that, that's the surprise. But yeah, the lack of adjectival congruity. Um, it seems to trouble people more nowadays than back then. Yeah. Well, I didn't know if there might have been some type of uh, translation of other language that would have lent itself to that. Yeah, not, not as far as I know, but John Bauer is your one-stop shop for finding out all matters catechetical. Um, he's got a book on the larger catechism. He has another book on the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's just fabulous on the history and making of the confession. It should be coming out soonishly. Uh, it's done. It's with the publisher uh, maybe, maybe later this year, maybe early next year. Uh, and then he's going to start working on the shorter catechism. In fact, he's already well on his way. Uh, yeah, other questions or comments? Yes, sir. Uh, just a question. Uh, uh, in regards to the fact that you, it seemed like the focus on ministry, was there any focus in regards to the other offices and what they expected from, uh, from ruling elders or deacons and so on and so forth? Yeah. Precious little. Precious little, um, in part because everyone agreed right from the start that the church should have ministers. But there's a big fight in the assembly and then with parliament as to whether there should be ruling elders. And so, in fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith refers to elders merely as other church officers. It, you, you know, it's even hard to get the word elder used until pretty late in the assembly's history. And so they don't get around to a real discussion of what they're to do. Uh, deacons as well, uh, there's min minimal discussion. Uh, but there is some. There is some. And so uh, if you... If, if you have unwisely purchased the minutes and papers of the Westminster Assembly, <laughs> for which you would undoubtedly would have needed to take out a second mortgage on your car or auction off a child uh, for Saturday labor uh, in order to pay for it, uh, you would find in the opening pages of Volume 2 a, an, a draft of a directory for church worship that does, uh, for church government, that does sort of spell out different duties. Um, of deacons and, and, and elders and so on, but it's, it's very slight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, you know, the kind of the next major resurgence in thinking about church polity after the 17th century is really the 19th century, and you get a lot more reflection then. Yeah. Samuel Miller is one of the first to really do a kind of a knockdown job on, on ruling elders, for example. Yeah. Other questions or comments? Yes, sir. Richard Baxter wrote about the same time, uh, leaving aside his theological problems. I'd be interested in uh, any comments regarding his relationship to the assembly persons. Uh, yeah. So Richard Baxter is a, is a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> he uh, he is friends with a number of divines at the assembly. 
he's a bit like a gossip columnist. Uh, you know, everything in the assembly was supposed to be kept secret. But Richard Baxter um, just tries to find out what news he can. He speculates sometimes. He creates narratives. Um, and um, and, and he, he, he does have an impact on the way in which the Westminster Assembly and its writings are received by a later generation. Um, and I, I found out some interesting things. I'm, I'm actually being a little bit coy in my answer uh, because I, I do have some interesting Baxter-Westminster Assembly connections that no one's ever noticed before. And I'm kind of saving it for a publication that I'm working on. Uh, so, so I'm kind of unwilling to you know, kind of have that recorded just now. <laughs> um, he, he, uh, he does evoke comment from dis different divines um, when it comes to his views on justification and so on. He, he sometimes tries to, to say other people are agreeing with him, and they're quick to say, actually, no, we're not. Um, uh, so, so, so there, yeah, there's, there's some good Baxter connections. Yeah. Anyone else? Ten or so minutes, if you've got any questions you want to publicly air. Uh, there, there will I understand be. burnout, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> um, uh, Dr. Van Dixhorn does have a flight this afternoon. We need to make sure we get into the airport on time for that. So there may be limited time uh, over snacks and things in the fellowship hall uh, uh, for that. So if you've got anything you want to ask him publicly, please uh, take, your, take your shot here. Kevin. On the relationship between the English and the Scottish with reference to elders and things. Because obviously the Scots already had books of order going back to the Genevan order that Box brought into Scotland that does delineate duties. And yet the English didn't have that. So is this also part of the fact that there's sort of a compromise going on? Or is it? Um, so, so of, of, of course, y yes, there are some duties which you can find outlined uh, regarding um, the work of ruling elders with Scots. Still, nothing like the development you see you see later. Um, but Parliament is so nervous about the idea of ruling elders. Um, that uh, that the assembly is just is just really quite muted about it, and there are so uh, there are some um, there there are disagreements amongst the Presbyterians about ruling elders. For example, um, once the majority become convinced that ruling elders are biblical, there's still a question of whether every congregation needs one. Um, and if every congregation needs one, how many? Um, and whether a pastor can exercise discipline without the ruling elders or whether it must be with the ruling elders. Uh, in the Church of England, will church wardens kind of be repurposed as ruling elders? And so on. So there's a whole bunch of questions. I do have, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dropbox. Oh, you know, I should not say this on video or get too many email. I can talk to you later about a way to access some kind of nerdy articles on church government that I've been writing um, uh, without you having to necessarily um, uh, purchase 
$100 volumes in which they seem to get printed. Um, and I do discuss some ruling elders there, yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for traveling all the way down, and I hope you all noticed the footwear that he has. Uh, he's, he's, <laughs> my children call it my midlife crisis. Yeah, I'm wearing boots. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Other other men have done far worse than that in their midlife crisis. So you're doing okay. <laughs> well, on my salary, this is all I can afford. <laughs> right. yeah. 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 Yeah, wear them with wear them with pride and distinction as you go back the, in the halls, the hallowed halls of Westminster the, Theological Seminary. Thank, thank you, and, Joe. Uh, yeah, let me uh, let me please uh, close this in prayer, and then please uh, stick around for snacks and things like that. Our gracious God, we do give you thanks, O oh Lord. You are gracious to your people. You're gracious to your church. We thank you, Christ Jesus, that, that you are the head of your church and that you rule her, that you care for her. We thank you that you are the chief shepherd of your flock. We pray for your church that you would cause her to, to be well, to be whole, to be sound, to be healthy. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to raise up pastors and elders and deacons, that you would continue to edify your saints, your people. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would grow your people in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, dear Lord, that we, uh, as, uh, as members of your church in this age, that we would not be afraid, that we would be diligent in looking to your word, but also looking to uh, those developments of your church in the past in such places as the Westminster Assembly. We pray, dear Lord, that we would benefit from our brothers and sisters, uh, our fathers and brothers in the faith who've gone before us. We pray that we would be diligent students of history so that we might go forward uh, learning from their wisdom and learning from their mistakes. We pray, O Lord, for your blessings upon us now as we depart from this place and ask, O Lord, that you would bring us to your house tomorrow on the Lord's Day worship you with your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. <clears throat>